Gracious, holy, majestic God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your, your providential rule of all things that you caused this word to be written down. We thank you that we have the ability to study it together, to participate together as your word is proclaimed. And we pray that by your, by your spirit's work in us that we would hear the very words of Christ, not the words of men. And to that end, Father, help me to be faithful to the authority of the text. Help me to submit myself and all of us together submit ourselves to the word of the living God, believing that you will use this means to grow us in godliness, conforming us more and more to the spirit of the living Christ, assuring us of true faith, and also convicting our neighbors our sons and daughters, our friends, our family members, those who are outside of Christ, of their desperation, their great need for pardon and cleansing, and the sure promise that Christ is able to save to the uttermost. We pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You will turn with me now to Judges chapter 4. That will be our text today. The Lord willing, we'll cover the entire chapter. I've entitled the text, or the sermon today, Who's in Charge Here? Who's in Charge Here? And I think that title may make some sense as we work through this. I want to start with posing a question to you. Have you ever had a, a story that you tell in your life that you've just told over and over again to the point where it's you kind of know where the punchlines are. You, you, you know how the rhythm of the story goes. Maybe it's a funny story. Maybe it's a sad story. Maybe it's a, it's a, a, a story that just sort of explains something significant in your life. And when you tell that story, you've had to make certain editorial decisions because you can't give every single detail. So I know some of you try. But you can't give every detail every time you tell the story. And, and, and over time, you've determined what, what, is, what is absolutely critical to get the essence of the story. And remember... Maybe you've had this experience, especially a husband and wife, or maybe two close friends or siblings, and they've experienced the same thing, and then you, have, you do the team storytelling. You ever done that? And you don't really even agree together what's the most important detail? <laughs> Guys, have you ever had that? You're telling the story, and your wife jumps in and says, but, but this, but you forgot this. That's, that's not important. That's not the main point. This is the main point. Well, we, we believe that the, that the Scriptures are all God-breathed. God has used a human author with his personality, with his weaknesses, but he has infallibly, perfectly breathed out the very words of God which have been recorded and preserved for us. But that doesn't mean that every word that we might want to know about is recorded for us. We know, for example, John's Gospel closes with a statement that if all the things that Jesus had said and done had been recorded... All the books in the world couldn't contain it. So we know the Spirit of God working through human authors has been selective in what he's given to us. Now we saw that in maybe an extreme measure last week when we looked at Shamgar. We had dedicated a whole sermon to one verse, a man about which we really know very little. Now today we get to Judges 4, the situation is different. We have much more detail, but it doesn't mean we have all the detail that we might want to know. And 
chapter 4 and chapter 5 really ought to be taken together. It's really a very rare thing in the scriptures. It only happens one other time in the book of Exodus where you have one single event that's chronicled for us in a narrative form and then immediately in a poetic form. So chapters 4 and 5 give us a newspaper account, if you will, a journalistic inquiry of what happened. And then chapter 5 gives us a song of praise celebrating the very same event. So we'll, we'll spend two weeks on this same event, but looking at it from really two different genres, two different perspectives. You know, for example, the story of Esther in the Old Testament. You read the book of Esther all the way through, and not once do you even see the name of God. God isn't mentioned at all, and yet it is certain that God is the unseen mighty hand working all those events to bring about his purposes. Well, in a similar way, we're going to see this in Judges 4 and 5. So we'll come to, we'll meet people like Barak, Deborah, Jael, and we may be tempted to even ask, who's the real judge here? Who exactly is the judge? Is it Deborah? Is it Barak? Who's in charge here? Who is the one who's delivering Israel? And there are several points at which the narrator is, I think, intentionally selective in what he leaves out. So that our attention is not on a human actor, but on the divine actor the sovereign mover of all things. Commentators and, and preachers will sometimes spend a lot of ink and a lot, waste a lot of breath trying to sort through those rabbit trails and try to pontificate and speculate about these various things. And I'll, I'll mention some of those speculations as we go through. Some of them are interesting. But we can end up then missing perhaps the complete point, that God alone is the deliverer of his people. Who's in charge here? So here's what we're going to see in Judges 4. I'm going to take us through sort of three movements in the narration. First is we see God's plan revealed. Then we're going to see God's plan put in motion, and then God's plan fulfilled. And in all of that, this serves as, in a, in a way, sort of a dramatic stage play. It's a true story. It's a literal story. Things happen as they are recorded. But then it also serves a secondary level. It serves as kind of a dramatic stage play for the entire redemptive arc, God's entire redemptive plan. You've heard perhaps the terms, sort of a summary of God's redemptive work as, as re, of, of, of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Well, in this story, we don't get creation, but we do get the fall. We get a picture of, of man's sin and, and plunging into depravity and wickedness. wickedness. And we get a, a sense of God's redemption of them. And we also see an echo of the consummation of all things. So that's what we're going to see. If you want to just write down three words, revealed, in motion, and fulfilled. I guess that's four words. Revealed, in motion, and fulfilled. I'm going to read the first three verses to start with, and then I'll read the rest of it as we walk through those three movements. Here now, the Word of God. Then, and I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, by the way, and there's, there's a particular reason for that that we'll get to uh, later in the sermon. Then the sons of Israel again did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Now Ehud had died, and Yahweh sold them 
into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth, Hagoyim. Then the sons of Israel cried to Yahweh, for he, that being Sisera, had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Who's in charge here? We see at the beginning that here's the stage. Here's, here's Israel plunged into sin. Ehud has died. They'd had 80 years of peace, and now because of their wickedness that still remained, Ehud did not address the problem of indwelling sin. And now, like a dog to its vomit, they have returned to the very things to which they did before. What things? Well, it, was, it was idolatry. It was sexual immorality. It was offering their children up to sacrifices. It was all the things that God had told them before they went into the land of Canaan. This is what those neighbors will do, and you should have no part of it. Giving your, your sons over to their daughters in marriage and taking their daughters for your own sons. Let's notice, first of all, how God reveals his plan. And it may be in a, in a surprising way. God reveals his plan through a prophetess, through a woman. We read just today in Isaiah chapter 3 where God said that's actually a mark of God's rebuke upon his people and God's judgment that a woman will rule over you. And yet, here they are. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun? And I will draw you out. This is God speaking. I will draw you out to Sisera, the, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon. And I will give him into your hand. And then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So here's God putting his plan, or God's revealing his plan here. God says very clearly and plainly through the prophetess Deborah. And we need to notice in the very, very first place that the emphasis in the story is on God. It's on his plan to save his people. And it highlights two key truths about God. There are two things that we learn as God reveals his plan. The first is his providential rule. God's going to use unlikely people, unlikely circumstances, unlikely geography, unlikely means to deliver his people. And God providentially rules over all things. We're going to see in a moment that just what appears to be some, the editor kind of deposits this little nugget about a random guy who happens to set up his tent, and, and then we find out later why that's important. But God is providentially moving all the pieces on the chessboard to accomplish his divine purposes. And his primary purpose is to deliver his people for his own glory. But there's a second part of this that we're going to see as we walk through is, is the great mercy of God. The people had willfully rebelliously, stubbornly plunged themselves back into sin yet again. They didn't learn. 
They haven't learned. They won't learn. And yet God hears. God rescues. And notice here, when God speaks through the prophetess Deborah, he says, notice the the repeated I will phrases. God says, I will draw out Sisera. I will give him into your hand. And we're going to see that's exactly what happens. The text tells us that it is God who causes Sisera's army to be routed. I will. I will. And from Deborah's prophecy, it's clear that God is in charge, not Deborah, not Barak, not Jael, no one, not, and certainly not Sisera or Jabin. It is God who is in charge. In fact, this is precisely the point that Barak gets wrong, isn't it? Because Barak says, if you go, speaking to Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go. If you don't go, I won't go. See, Barak is wrong about who's in charge. He thinks that it depend, that his safety, his welfare, his victory depends upon Deborah. Deborah's simply the mouthpiece. She's simply the one who God uses in that moment to speak what, he, what God intends to do. Deborah's not the one who is the cause or the agent of God's deliverance. And, and Barak erred severely by believing that Deborah was necessary for his victory. Now consider how God's plan, how God reveals his plan in his great mercy to his people. He's already demonstrated his, his patience with his people. He's already demonstrated that he is willing to deliver his people yet again. I mean, they rebelled, they rebelled before Ehud's rescue. They'd already gotten themselves in a, in, a, in a horrible situation under the king of Moab for 18 long years, you think. Well, they'll learn now, won't they? But they don't. And neither do we, do we? How often do we get ourselves into a predicament and think, well, okay, well, this time we'll learn. And we don't. And yet God demonstrates his patience. Even after 80 more years, they've still continued in rebellion. That's two generations later. Because, see, we have this notion in our culture that we're, we're all evolving, we're getting better, and each, each subsequent generation will be more advanced and better off than the generation before. We have three generations here, and each one is worse than the first one. Consider how merciful God is. And then after selling them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, they were harassed and oppressed for another 20 years, and yet they still don't learn. The people again cried out for help from the Lord. And you know what he did? I mean, what would you do? Let's just be honest. What would you do? You've, you're, over, you're, you're in charge, you're over the world, you've seen this stubborn people, you've taught them, you've warned them, you've given your word written down to them. It's not like they can say, I didn't know, I forgot that part. It's written down. They rebelled again. And they cried out again. And God heard and answered yet again. This event in Judges 4 represents in a sense, what we, what we might call the middle stage of God's unfolding of his plan to redeem and to rescue his people. He answered them. He delivered them. He rescued them. He showed them mercy. Difference, do you know a God? Do you know this God who shows this kind of mercy? 
I mean, do, do you know him experientially? Do you know him personally? The God who delights to show mercy to those who do not deserve mercy. I mean, the people had whored after other gods. And those gods failed them because they always will. They're dumb and deaf and mute. They cannot speak. They cannot even carry themselves. That's what Isaiah says later on. They have to carry around their idols because the idols can't even carry themselves. And yet we're dumb enough to worship them. They had hoard after other gods. They had directly and deliberately disobeyed the clear commands of God. Now, in Deuteronomy 30, this is, this is Moses preaching to the people right before he send, God sends them into the promised land. Listen to what Moses says. Deuteronomy 30, beginning of verse 11, he says, For this commandment which I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it far from you. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us and make, it, make us hear it that we may do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us and get it for us and make us hear it that we may do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and calamity, in that I am commanding you today to love Yahweh your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that Yahweh your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. Well, saints, this is still true. God's commands are not complicated, are they? We don't have to, as it were, go up to heaven to figure out what the commands are. We don't have to cross the sea to move heaven and earth to figure out what does is, what is God want for me to do? How is it that God wants me to walk before him in obedience? These commands are not mysterious. They're not locked away somewhere or located far away. The problem is that his rebellious people simply refuse to do what their father has said to do. They refuse to stop doing what their father has said, thou shalt not do that. And yet God showed them mercy. God heard them. God delivered them. Who can imagine such a God? A God who is infinitely holy, who is unchangeable, who is majestic, whose glory is almighty, all-seeing, furious in his anger against sin, and also infinitely merciful to those on whom he has set his eternal love. Who can imagine such a God? A God that would hear and a God that would answer. Do you know this God? Do you know the God who so loved all of his elect that he planned before the foundations of the earth were laid that he would send a rescuer, that he would send his only begotten son? That he and he alone would deliver those who believe in him and that he's promised eternal life. Judges 4, again, reveals sort of this, this middle stage. God has made his plan known. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, immediately after Adam and Eve had rebelled against God, they were born in a state of innocency. God had given them a perfect law to, to rule them and guide them. They stubbornly rebelled against them. They listened to the serpent instead of God. And God, cursing the serpent, says in the hearing of Adam and Eve, but I will raise up a seed of the woman whose heel will be bruised by the serpent, but who will, in fact, crush the head of the serpent. 
See, God revealed his plan beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And then by further steps through the patriarchs, through King David, through the prophets, and finally and fully being confirmed through Christ Jesus, God's plan of redemption has been revealed. Not every mystery of his providence has been made known to us. Barak had to step out in faith. We saw that just today, and as we read in in Hebrews 11, faith is a substance of things not seen. God gives his promises. I will do this. I will give your enemy into your hands. What are you going to do with that promise? Are you going to believe me? Are you going to act upon that? Beloved, do not run from such mercy. Don't hide from such mercy. Do not wait for a better opportunity. Flee to the eternal judge and deliverer and rescue of both your body and your soul. Run to the cross of Jesus Christ. Run to him. There at the cross is where Christ himself gave himself to satisfy the wrath of God that was justly due to sinners. His plan to redeem a people, to save his people, has been revealed to us. What do you do with that knowledge? What do you do with that understanding? And the first nine verses of Judges describe an actual historical event in the life of Israel. This has really happened as it was recorded, but it also points us, again, to a much greater stage, a much greater deliverer, a stage on which the drama of man's fall and rebellion against God leads inevitably and infallibly to an irreversible, irreversible plan to rescue his people. And God has made this known through his messenger. In this case, it happens to be Deborah. It happens to be a prophetess. God has revealed his plan. But now, let's see how he puts it into motion. Look at verse 10. So having been assured by, by Deborah that she, in fact, will go up with him, Barak, Barak says, I will go. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together, in verse 10, to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now, here's this little editorial aside I mentioned. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Well, what does that have to do with the story? What does this have to do with what's going on? Well, we'll see. The, the, the narrator just sort of drops that little nugget. And he mentions that Heber is a Kenite. Well, we've already seen Othniel, the first and best of the judges, was a Kenite. Caleb was a Kenite. The Kenites were essentially, they were not Israelites, but they were, had been essentially grafted in to the tribe of Judah. In God's mercy, he had grafted them in. But here, we see one who has, in a sense, rebelled against that. We're going to find out later in the narrative that Heber had made a treaty with King Jabin, the king of Canaan. Going on with, this, with the narrative, verse 12, Then they, sold, they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand. Has not Yahweh gone, on, gone out before you? 
So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and Yahweh threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his camp into confusion with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera came down from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and all those in the camp as far as Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the camp of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one remained. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber. See, I told you the tent would come back into play. He flees on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him. And he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent. It shall be if anyone comes and asks of you and says, Is there a man here? Then you shall say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg, placed a hammer in her hand, and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. So here's a picture of God putting his plan into motion. We're first told about the plan, and then we see God's plan put into action, to put into motion. Now there are, if you read 10 commentators, you're probably going to get half a dozen different theories about, about Barak. And it will range from extremes. On one hand, you will find that one commentator even used the word sissy to describe Barak that he was a cowardly man. There are others, on the other hand, who say there's no, there's no slight, there's no knock on Barak's character here when he says, I won't go up unless Deborah, the prophetess, goes up with me. They say, well, that's an act of faith on his part. That he was acting in faith because he knew he needed the, the ongoing revelation of God in order to be successful in battle. I suspect the truth is somewhere in between those two poles, somewhere between those two extremes. I think Barak is demonstrating true faith, and I think that's confirmed in the second half of Hebrews 11. We'll read this next week. Barak is listed in the so-called Hall of Fame of Faith. Barak's faith was true faith. But in this particular moment, it was weak. Now, this is the nature of true faith, though, isn't it? Sometimes, sometimes we, we feel like there's a, with respect to our faith, that there's a red cape flapping behind us, and we can move mountains with our faith. Other days, our faith feels very weak. But the Scriptures teach very clearly to us that we are not, we are not saved by means of the strength of our faith but the genuineness of it. Barak's faith was genuine. It was weak, but it was genuine. But, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Who, who could blame him? I mean, 900 iron-plated chariots against men on foot, mostly farmers, perhaps even disarmed father, uh, farmers. We saw this last week where Shabgar 
slaughtered Philistines with an ox goad, a pointy stick. So it's, it's not unreasonable for Barak to say, are you sure that God is in this? Like, will you go? Because if there's a change of plans, I'd like to know. So let's not be too quick to condemn Barak. But at the same time, we, we do acknowledge his faith was weak. He was given a clear command of God. He was given a clear instruction from God. And he said, I won't go. I won't go. And it, and it presents us sort of the question implicit in the text, where is your faith weak? Where is your faith weak with respect to a very clear command of God? God has said, this is what you should do. Where is your faith weak? And you think, I can't do that unless somebody else helps me. Barak had forgotten that his strength comes from the Lord, not from men, or not from a woman. But it seems to me that both Barak, and we're going to see this later with Sisera, had something in common. Both acted from fear and from a sense of self-preservation, and they both were willing to put a woman in danger to save themselves. One failed to receive honor in victory because of that, and the other's dishonor and defeat was magnified by the fact that it comes at the hand of a woman. Maybe you remember... Later in the book of Judges, in Judges 9, where Abimelech is actually, his, the, the more, what would have been a mortal wound occurred because a woman threw an upper millstone over the wall and cracked his skull open. And remember, he cries out to his armor bearer, run me through with the sword so that it cannot be said that he was killed by a woman. It was a shameful thing. He said, I would rather die by a sword than bleed out here and, and have people think that I was killed by a woman. But we know that God has chosen those things that are viewed as weak in the eyes of the world in order to shame the strong. I'm going to return here in a few moments to the issue of, of, of God's use of Deborah. What are the implications of that? But when we think about the, the way that the narration flows. As God's plan has been revealed to us and now it's put in motion, we see that God is, is moving in such a way, even using wicked men like Heber. Heber is described by one commentator as a man of dubious loyalty, perhaps regarded as disreputable even by his own family. He was a Kenite, but he had left the Kenites and made a compact, a treaty, probably a trade treaty, which is why Sisera knew where his tent was and and, and knew you know, whose tent it was. But he's, he's put himself in league with the devil, so to speak. He's put himself in an economic treaty with the king of Canaan. And this little tidbit about a random mercenary in an apparently random place figures prominently when we see that it's actually to that very tent that the commander of the entire army just happens to end up. Now, verse 15 gives us very, very little information about the battle itself. Yahweh through Sisera, remember Yahweh had said, as his plan is revealed, I will, I will, I will. We get to verse 15, Yahweh through Sisera and all his chariots and all his camp into confusion with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera came down from his chariot and fled away on foot. I remember as a, as a teenager, middle schooler, high schooler, in history. 
And I just couldn't wait. As we're studying history, we've got all these names and dates and places and people, and I just couldn't wait to get to the battles. I just couldn't wait. And I was always disappointed. Every single time I was disappointed. As we'd get there and it'd be you know, this much in the book, and then we'd go back to 100 pages of reading about dates and places and treaties. And <gasps> where do we get another war? Well, we get to, to verse 15, and it's, it's kind of the same thing. The narrator doesn't give us much information about how God, God routed the chariots. He threw Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his camp into confusion. How? I mean, how did this happen? Well, I don't want to spoil it for you, but when you read the poetry of chapter 5, you'll discover God used rain. That it's a picture of even heaven itself fighting against the king of Canaan and his army so that the chariots got bogged down in the mud. Where have you heard that before? Where have you heard of another mighty army full of chariots wiped off the face of the earth by a sovereign God who used the elements of even nature? As we look at that next week, we'll, we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time there. But, but here's the thing. Sisera, which is why, we, we, if we're reading only this chapter 4, we might be, we might be confused. We might even question, why did this man abandon a perfectly good iron-plated chariot and set off on foot? Where was his armor bearer? There usually was at least two in a chariot. Where, where was the other guy? Why did Cicero take off on foot? Which way did he go? Why did he go that direction? We're not told any of that, except he just happens to end up at the tent of Heber. And more importantly, has an encounter with Heber's wife. We see this certain of finding refuge in this particular tent, He's, he's confident. I mean, look the way he goes up. Now, Sisera fled away on verse 17 on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Now, surely, as commander of the army, responsible for maintaining those trade routes, Sisera would have known this. And as we look ahead in chapter 5, verse 6, it says, In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anoth, in the days of Jael, the paths had ceased, so travelers went by roundabout paths. In other words, the Israelites couldn't even travel in the open. Well, here's a tent that's out in the open. How's that? Well, because he's in league. He's got a treaty with the king. Cicero knows this. So that's where he goes. And I'd imagine in, uh, in our own American history, for example, one of the, a particular battle in the Civil War, it's out in a countryside somewhere, but there's one farmhouse out on the hill. And imagine maybe a soldier from either the Confederacy or the Union Army fleeing for refuge to the one house that was available. Sister runs to the one tent that was available. He knows whose it is. He comes in and, and Jael assures him of safety. She even offers him milk instead of mere water for thirst. So he's thinking, this is good. She's the wife of a mercenary. She's the wife of one of our, my king's trading partners. And he was so secure, he thought, he simply told her to tell anyone looking for him that no one was there, and he fell asleep. Now, isn't that the way of all the enemies of Christ in his church? Think about this. You could turn on the news. You can, you can watch the talking heads. You can read through your blogs or your social media, and, and the enemies of Christ seem so sure 
so secure, so relaxed in their positions. It's as if they don't have a care in the world. It's as if they could just lay down and sleep. Judges 4 reminds us that no enemy of Christ should ever rest. No enemy of Christ is ever secure. No enemy of Christ is ever truly at peace. He thinks he is. He seems so confident in his safety. And our enemies can seem so confident in their safety that we end up being lulled into believing they're right, don't we? Sometimes we even begin to think, well, maybe they're right. Maybe they are more secure even than I am. Because they've got superior numbers or because they've got the platform, they have the notoriety. But we're not the first generation to ask the Lord, Lord, why did the, why did the way of the wicked prosper? And Jael stands as a, or Sisera and Jael send as a, as a stark reminder to us that our enemies are not as peaceful as they make themselves look to be. And we need to remember that. But for Sisera and all of the enemies of God, it proves to be a, a false peace, a short peace. I mean, you know the story. Jael takes a hammer, a, a big mallet, and a tent peg. And as he sleeps, rams the tent peg through his head all the way into the ground. You read through chapter 5, it's even maybe more graphic. The, the, the song of Deborah sort of lingers on that moment. She's stealthy, J.L. is. She's determined. She's fierce. But, but why did she do this? I mean, after all, her husband is some sort of mercenary, either military or economic mercenary, who's in league with the, the king of Canaan. Why would she kill his general. We're not told that. I mean, we might speculate. We might speculate that this may be not his, his first time in her tent. We might speculate that just as soldiers have often done throughout history, when they uh, assume quartering privileges and they take advantage in every way. Perhaps this was her own vengeance. We don't know. In fact, the interpretive tradition of Jewish rabbis on this scene is shall we say, colorful. Examining and even speculating. There are, there are some very rare Hebrew words in the text. And they have come to some very creative conclusions. And they end up finding sort of double entendres, lascivious kinds of implications in the text. They teach that it was not only the battle and his sprint on foot that exhausted him. In fact, go and read Proverbs 7, verses 10 to 23, and compare the language of the adulterous woman there with the language of Jael, as she, almost with too much hospitality, invites him into the tent. And then to heap up even more shame onto the enemies of Israel. We saw this with the account of Ehud and, and Eglon, the fat, feminine, effeminate calf, and how surely the, the laughter would have echoed from the halls of the pub when that story was told and retold. Well, we see something similar again here. 
And this is the reason I mentioned that I'm reading specifically from the, the legacy standard rather than the ESV, because in verse 20, the ESV ends up using some gender-neutral language that I think obscures the humor. As he lays down comfortable, peaceful, certain of his security, he tells her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and asks of you and says, Is there a man here? Your answer is to be, There's no man here. Emasculating their enemy. And can't you imagine, again, the howls of laughter as that part's retold? That their enemy, the best of the king of Canaan's army, was in the end emasculated. Not only killed by a woman, but in a way the narrator even puts the line, the punchline, puts it in his mouth. You tell them. When they say, is there a man here? You tell them, no, there's no man here after all. Now, it's at this point, if they haven't already, that sometimes well-meaning commentators get get deep in the weeds, and they, and they miss the point of, of God's providential rule over all things. The focus of Judges 4 is supposed to be upon God, upon God who, who reveals his plan and then puts this plan into motion. But where in this text is the emphasis usually placed? It's on Deborah. It's on Deborah. I mean, we've got this woman ruler, after all. And because God had, had used the means of a prophetess, has used Deborah and, and her faithful carrying out of her responsibilities. Instead, particularly those from a, a feminist sort of leaning, began at this point to pontificate about Deborah and Jael, and they used this as an instruction regarding women's roles within the church, for example. And so then you have this scenario where an an honest Bible student might assert something like this. God in his wisdom has decreed that only men are to serve as officers in his church and to teach and preach to his church, and even not even all men, but only those whom he has called and gifted and qualified and affirmed by means of his church. And so that's been the just plain old historic orthodoxy. Nothing controversial about that throughout history until fairly recently. But then the feminist objector comes along and says, yeah, but what about Deborah? Deborah was a judge. Deborah was a prophetess. Therefore, surely women ought to be able to preach and be pastors and deacons and elders. Well, there's a problem with that line of reasoning, and I think you probably will will spot it. I hope you, you spot it pretty quickly. See, we have to distinguish when we read, particularly particularly narrative text, where we have a history where God has given us an accounting of what happened, that is, we might say, descriptive. It describes what took place. It is not necessarily prescriptive. It doesn't tell us what ought to have happened. For example, we could read in other places where about David and his multiple wives and concubines. That was descriptive. It actually happened. But we got a problem if we think it's prescriptive. Right? None of you wives would say, I'm going to endorse that view, that this is prescriptive. We have to make those distinctions. 
But if we carry this to its logical conclusion, if we take the logical leap, for example, that since Deborah was used of God as a prophetess and a judge of Israel, and she was faithful in those tasks, she was good at what God had called her to do. But if we take the logical leap and say because Deborah was a prophetess and a judge in Israel, that it must also be true that God regularly and normally uses women as teachers and leaders in his church, then you're going to be in deep water in the rest of the book of Judges, aren't you? Are you going to say that God prefers left-handed, treacherous assassins? What about womanizers and philanderers like Samson? Is that the prototype then? What about cowardly idolaters like Gideon? What about rash vow makers and child sacrificers like Japheth? So you see where that goes? There's nothing in Judges. Rarely do we see anything in Judges that is commendable for us as an example to be followed. It's simply a statement of what happened in a time when the, the overarching summary of the book of Judges is there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, Matthew Henry speculates, and I think this, is, this may be helpful. Matthew Henry speculates, because he's still wrestling with the question, but why is it that God used a woman? That that's breaks the pattern. I mean, we can, even, even a feminist will, will admit that does break the pattern. Why would God use a woman? Well, with the degree of oppression to the point where they couldn't even travel about freely, it might be the case that, that God raised up a woman because she could sort of fly under the radar. She could sit openly under the palm tree in a public space and teach God's word to God's people because if a man did the same thing, he'd be put to death. Again, speculative, but reasonable to think about. But listen to Daniel Block in his commentary on this passage. He makes an incisive comment of arguing that God does indeed highlight women's roles in Judges 4, but not for the same purposes that some feminists have alleged. Listen to this. He says, The heroic roles played by women and, and the negative light in which men are cast in this chapter offers investigators fertile ground for feminist commentary. In their enthusiasm to celebrate the subversion of patriarchy, such interpretations subvert the authority of God and obscure the message he seeks to communicate through the text. The biblical author was obviously interested in women's affairs and achievements, but in the final analysis, Deborah and Jael are not heroic figures because of their revisionist challenges to prevailing social structures. They are heroines because of what they accomplish as agents of the divine agenda, which in this instance has less to do with overthrowing oppressive patriarchy than the role they played in Yahweh's overthrowing oppressive Canaanites. The entire account is deliberately crafted to highlight the salvation provided by God. He is the chief operator, pulling the strings, raising generals, deploying armies, dictating strategy, and effecting victory. See, that's the point. Judges 4 is not given to us as a template for who should or should not be in ministry. That's not the point of the text. It's not even a, a remote application of the text. But I think that's important, and I'm going to repeat the last part. He says, the entire account is deliberately crafted to highlight the salvation provided by God. He is the chief operator, pulling the strings, raising generals, deploying armies, dictating strategy, and effecting victory. So we learn here 
that, that God's plan depends wholly, entirely upon him and him alone. According to his divine wisdom and power, God is the one who arranges all things. He arranges all people. He arranges all circumstances. He arranges even the location of a tent to fulfill his plan to rescue his people. He's able to use any man, any beast, any circumstance to accomplish his purposes. And that ought to be wonderfully comforting to us, isn't it? When we see wicked men placed in position of prominence, just as Heber, the, the you know, rebellious Kenite was, and we think, man, the wicked are prospering here. And God, in a sense, pulls back the veil and says, well, it may look that way, but I'm actually, I put him there to accomplish my purpose in delivering and rescuing my people. We see in the last three verses now, in verse 22, the fulfillment of God's plan. And, and, and again, very little space is, is left here. And I think part of that is because the story's still unfolding. The story's still unfolding. Now behold, Barak, verse 22, was pursuing Sisera. And Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, I'll show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. Now, God had said through Deborah at the very beginning, hadn't he, that the victory will be won through the hand of a woman. Now, probably anybody in the hearing of that would have assumed that was going to be Deborah. Somehow, someway, Deborah was going to be the one, but that wasn't the case. It was an unsuspecting, an unexpected woman that God happened to use. Verse 23, so God subdued on that day Jabin, king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. And the hand of the sons of Israel went forth heavier and heavier against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had cut off Jabin, the king of Canaan. God fulfills his plan to complete the rescue of his people perfectly, infallibly, completely. And Judges 4 and 5, and again, next week when we kind of look at these together, gives us a dramatic display of what God is doing in all of history to redeem his people. I mean, think about this. If we kind of zoom back out from Judges chapter 4 and and think of this, again, a literal historical event, but also one that points us to a greater reality. And I'm not going to allegorize the text, but there, there there are places where we can see that the events in the text point us to a greater spiritual reality. Man has sinned. Man, everyone, has gone his own way and rebelled against God. And God has sold man from the garden into the bondage of sin to a far greater oppressor than Jabin, king of Canaan. He's given us over to sin and death. But God in his mercy hears the cry of misery from mankind. And through his prophets, he announces his plan to redeem mankind. One day to raise up a deliverer. He promised the serpent in the garden. He promised Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then David, and on through the prophets. He he promised that I will one day raise up, and Paul makes a big deal out of this in the New Testament, not seeds, but seed. Singular. A seed. And he's promised this plan. He's announced this plan. But nothing happened yet all through the time of the judges, all through the times of the kings, all through the times of the prophets, 
through the exile, through the restoration of the land, through the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding of the temple, God has not dealt with the chief enemy, indwelling sin. All through the period of the Scriptures, we see this cycle of sin and misery crying out in temporary deliverance, but the cruelest oppressor of them all has not been defeated. Until one day. Until one day. And not after 40 years, not after 80 years, but after 400 years of prophetic silence. One night, the heavens burst forth. First, a star blazes in the sky. And then the voice of an angel speaking to shepherds, saying, to this, on this day, a child is born, a Savior, Christ the Lord. And then, then a whole host of heavenly voices joined with the first angel, and they proclaim that salvation is here. God's plan is going to be fulfilled now. Now, instead of a prophetess under a palm tree, it's a whole host of heavenly voices declaring what God is about to do. Think about this. I think my mind immediately went to the old, old Simeon. Remember Simeon in Luke chapter 2? This old man, he's described as a faithful man, a devout man. We're not told much about him. He's, he's, he's advanced in age, and I just kind of imagine that his wife has gone years before him. He's outlived even probably a couple of his children. And he's waiting for the salvation of Israel. But the Spirit of God has told him, you're going to live to see the Savior. And then one ordinary morning, he's eating breakfast by himself. And the Spirit leads him to the temple. And there, while he's there, a young couple comes in with a child in their arms who is Christ, the Savior, the King. And, and Simeon just, the text says, he takes up the child in his arms. And he says, now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all the people. God's plan has been announced, and now it's being fulfilled. God's eternal plan is being fulfilled in time and space, and God has arranged everything perfectly in his perfect time. All the people are in place, even the evil ones like Pilate and Caiaphas and Judas. The tents are set up where they need to be set up. All the pieces and the people are exactly where they need to be. And now instead of... Instead of a woman with a tent peg and a hammer. We have a Savior who affects our deliverance by means of nails going through his own flesh and into the cross. And it's there on that cross he becomes a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. God has put his plan into motion. He's bringing about everything that he had planned before, before eternity began or before the world began. And he announced it to humans and through angels and through prophets. And then now, after the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, instead of Barak going up against Sisera, being assured of no glory at all, 
Now King Jesus sends his church up against her enemies with a sure promise of eternal glory. And a sure promise that all enemies, even the final enemy, death itself, is going to be defeated. And now with the witness of the apostles, the Holy Spirit, Jesus has promised that one day, one day, he's going to return and not only kill the earthly oppressor, but to cast the king of darkness into everlasting destruction, into the lake of fire. We have that sure promise. And by doing so, he's going to fully and finally give his people peace. And not for 40 years, not for 80 years, but for eternity. For eternity, rest and peace without even the possibility of returning to our old idolatrous ways. That's the promise that God has made, saints. Judges 4 is a dramatic stage play that opens up the panorama of God's redemptive work to us. So who was the savior of Israel? Was it Deborah? Was it Barak? Was it Jael? It was God and God alone. He uses human instruments of all varieties. Man, woman, he'll use either one. Wicked or righteous, he'll use either one and both. None of those... None of those human beings were our deliverer. Our triune God has revealed his plan. He's put that plan into motion. We live in that time when that plan is is sort of at its middle stage. The plan is in motion. The Savior has come. But the final enemy has not yet been fully defeated. We have the sure promise. We can bank on it. We can live according to it. We can rest in it for now. There's that tension of already and not yet. And your job, my job, is to believe it. Will will you act upon it? Will Will you hear the promise from God's word that he is going to deliver you, that he's going to rescue you, that he is going to conquer all of your enemies, including sin and death? And will you act upon that promise? Jesus says in John 6, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Will you believe Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us in, in various ways, that you've given us narrative history, you've given us poetry, you've, you've given us apocalyptic language, you've given us the gospels, you've given us epistles, you've, you've taught us in so many different ways. And we thank you for that variety that causes us to think deeply about who you are, what you have purposed to accomplish, what you are accomplishing right now among us, and what is yet to be fulfilled. Fathers, we give ourselves now, give our attention to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Will you help us to believe what our what our Lord testified through the Apostle Paul, that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim his coming. We proclaim his death until he comes. Help us to fix our minds upon Christ, crucified and risen. Help us to think carefully 
about the sure promise that he's given to fulfill all things upon his return. Help us to grow in our love for you with our whole mind, body, soul, and strength. Help us through Christ to love one another as ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.